0: Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Every week I talk to treasurers about how they built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. In this week's show, delighted to be joined by Peter Russell, Head of Treasury and Investor Relations at Travelport. Now, Travelport is a global technology company which makes buying and managing travel better for everyone, as they say. They're a travel commerce platform uh, massive group. Net revenues over $2.5 billion in 2018. They're quartered, actually, in Langley in the UK, over 3,700 employees globally, represented in over 180 countries and territories, so truly global group. Originally listed on New York Stock Exchange, recently become, gone into the hands of private equity, which Peter can talk you through that transition as well. Now, actually, I'll let Peter describe a bit more about his career and travel port and everything else about it. But if we do go back into his history, we were just saying before the show that I've actually known Peter since the turn of the century, and he always thanks me back in the day when I actually moved him from Diageo to Enron. But he still speaks to me, and we still meet for the odd beer or three. So, Peter, enough from me, as always. Let's take it back, maybe as far as your, well, university days, because you did a uh, an engineering degree, and they thought, "I oh, know, I'll, I'll go into accounting." Or talk us through and start that that
1: early start, if you would. Yeah, th- thanks, Mike. Thank you for that as the introduction. Yeah, I mean, I always been sort of more of a maths and science person, and embarked on an engineering degree at Warwick, which I I loved. But back in the uh, the late 80s show my age, I decided that engineering in the UK wasn't really a, a career for me. And, and back then, the the big six, as they were did a fantastic job of, of recruiting you know, young undergraduates like myself through the Milk Ground. They snapped up scientists and engineers and took them in to train as auditors. So I went to train with KPMG. I wanted to you know, get another good qualification under my belts, not really knowing what direction I wanted to really go with my career. So I did that. I'd admit I wasn't the, uh, the best auditors in the world, or the keenest auditors in the world, but I was really glad to get the qualification under my belt, and then started to think, well, well, what next? So I left KPMG and joined a subsidiary of Rabobank, Bank, really just as a financial accountant, and it was then that I discovered the world of treasury. My my then boss, who was the the finance director, was studying to these ACT exams, and I sort of looked over his shoulder one lunchtime and asked him what what he was looking at, what he was studying, and it was almost like a light bulb moment. I thought. Ah, this is this looks really interesting. I think I could sort of move my career in this direction, and especially at the beginning, when you're looking at the study material, it was kind of more back to that sort of mathsy, sciencey world I came from, learning about derivatives, the capital markets, etc. And so I started looking for a role which you know would take me into treasury. And as luck would have it, I managed to get a job as a treasury accountant at what was Grand Metropolitan before they merged with Guinness okay. and formed Diageo. And I remember at the time that the person who recruited me said, we don't care if you don't know anything about treasury, as long as you know your double entry, we'll mm. teach you everything you know. That was a fantastic routine. And I think even back then, they were struggling, and you know, we can talk about this, I've struggled over the years to get, uh, I guess, good qualified chartered accountants into the world of Treasury because it's seen as a very very niche way to go. But I'd certainly encourage anybody thinking about it to, to go for it because it's, it's a great career.
0: Talk us through Diageo. How was the Treasury set up at Diageo? And you know what did that, you know, because you, you made some moves, you were there for five years. How did it change and yeah. grow and things like yeah. that?
1: Well, I mean, I joined when it was still Grand Met- Metropolitan. And at the time, Grand Met owned a, a portfolio of companies, there, Burger King, Pillsbury Foods, uh, and a whole load of, of drinks brands. And we were based in central London. There was a team of probably around 20 treasury professionals and plus, plus assistants. And so I started there as, as treasury accountant. Around about the time as we were a company was looking to merge with Guinness, which had a similar size treasury function. So maybe you sort of talk about both those treasury functions, which merged to form the Diageo treasury function. They both had sort of corporate functions. So you had FX dealers, interest rate dealers. People looking at the, the the group's debt. You had a team of treasury accountants, back office team doing all the payments and, and bank runs, etc. cetera, for, for treasury, and then you had a team who looked at the wider global treasury issues, so the in country issues, you know, local facilities, etc. The model was you know remarkably similar for both both Guinness and uh, Grandmet. So we with the treasury teams merged. I was lucky to survive that because not obviously not everybody could uh, keep a job in the in the combined. Entity. So we were probably, I think at one point, sort of approaching, I think I once had up nearly 30 personnel of various forms, we formed the Diageo treasury team. So I went from a treasury accountant to being a treasury analyst to do more than around the, the interest and, and, and the debt, et cetera. And then I managed to get a role in the digging room in the front office in, in the fishbowl as it was back then, the enclosed. Dealing room, yeah, that was fantastic experience learning how to deal. And back in those days, it's all telephone dealing. I will admit, I've never done a transaction, an FX transaction, for example, on a uh, on an electronic platform. My my last deals were were done by phone. I've done we can talk about it in terms of my career and where I moved on. The sort of the the, the volume of FX dealing in, in subsequent companies is probably a lot less any dealing I've done has been sort of over the phone on an ad hoc basis you know that's something something which clearly the, the world of treasury's changed in terms of technology and, and the way we we do certain sort of transactional dealing but we can get onto that but so the, the big team the front office experience was fantastic and as a result of the merger I then got the role of FX risk manager for the group so it was a big role and the first 6 months were very focused on merging the two treasury functions. Now that that was a big job, a lot to be done. with slightly different approaches, both both companies to so the way we did our various F, uh, pieces of FX hedging. But we got there in the end, and then that sort of formed the basis of my role for the next uh, couple of years. So really, you know, that was the formative years of my my treasury career, from treasury accountant learning the, the debits and credits and and how to account for certain instruments, through to the analysis dealing with the debt side of things, and then. Through to the, the FX risk management, which I must say has actually been, you know, that of all things at Diageo is probably the, the piece that's probably followed me throughout my career. And you know, wherever you go uh, in, in Treasury functions, some of them have very little FX risk, some have more, but it's always the trickiest thing, I think, to not just for the people within Treasury to understand, but to wider colleagues within the, the finance function. So if you can understand FX and the accounting, I know the accounting's changed over the years. It, it, it's really tricky and, and actually if ever there's anything that comes to bite you in the world of treasury generally affects uh, losses. So if you can get your head around that then,
0: then you're doing well. And is it the exposure management and the, the changeable nature of that that's always the issue?
1: I mean that's what I always say about the world of corporate treasury. Doing the final deal is, is easy or fun mm. um, The really important thing is understanding the, the underlying exposures from a obviously a risk market perspective but also how they feed into the the books, into the financial statements of, of the business yeah. that you're managing the risk of. And, you know, quite often, you know, those exposures that aren't just given to you on a plate. You've got to go out and find them. And that's one of the things I've tried to do in the different companies I've I've worked at is you start and you inherit a certain amount of knowledge and information maybe from your colleagues or predecessor. But you've got to go out and really do some digging. But when I was at TroubleX well that's a massive FX company. The foreign exchange was kind of in, in two separate buckets almost. One was, call it the commercial FX, where they did cross-border transactions for clients, and that was run by yeah. a, a big team of FX dealers. But then you've got the underlying risk that the, the, the business is subject to, whether it, we call it the cash and sales, the stock uh, in the Bureau de Change or the underlying just business and the way it operates. and one summer, myself, one of my team at the time, called Patrick Archer, who's, who's now at Moneypool, we, we sort of undertook a, a summer of uh, an FX review and went through the various balance sheets and bits of the business and you, it unearthed exposures that we, we kind of knew about but maybe weren't managing as effectively as we should have been. And it's kind of the, the leftover, call it the boring stuff that nobody's really interested in. That's really important. So I'd always encourage you know, anybody in their career, whether it's looking at the interest rate risks ethics risk or, or other you know commodity risks that the business might have you know be be curious don't don't assume that you know it all and you know if you've got a little break in your calendar or there's time when you're not quite so busy you know go and do do some digging yeah, get, and go out and you know, speak to, speak to people in the business get stuck in sort of thing and then well mm. you know going
0: back then actually to that time so from the lovely diageo and drinks business and everything else and there was this uh, recruiter that came along (laughs) with this uh, very interesting role at the time although dodgy guy dodgy dodgy dude well you know very uh, you know and everyone knows about it it's a household name and for all the wrong reasons but we came up with a role at the time it was it was quite a curious role i remember sort of trying to talk to some of the people directly and meet them and they were like oh it was too busy but we got this role with this sort of diverse industrial company enron and I approached Peter, yeah. and and Peter, you went there, and you know, talk us through that. It was only for a period of what uh, nine, ten months,
1: but wow, you, know, yeah. you, you were there. Thanks, Mike. So yes, you brought brought this uh, fantastic opportunity to my attention. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, back, back to, I was at Diageo, I was wanting to, I knew I had to broaden my, my career. I mean, Diageo was a fantastic training ground, lots of exposure to different areas, but I knew I'd sort of been narrowed into this sort of area of ethics risk management. And I was thinking about broadening my, my experience and this role. Enron came up and one of my colleagues at the time at Diageo had been going on about this fantastic innovative company called Enron that I'd never heard of. And about three months later, you came along, Mike, with an opportunity, and I thought, "Ah, oh, I've heard of them," and joined them in uh, it's the late autumn of 2000, I think, when their share price was at uh, the height. Yeah, I think very quickly I. I basically realized I'd made a mistake. It's one of those career mistakes. I think you and I had a chat. I wanted to keep my head down for a bit. But long story short, you know, after various conversations, you know, with you and, and other people I knew, a couple of colleagues back at Diageo decided it was it was best to, to move on. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I think having made that m- mistake, you, you sort of got to get on and, and do something about it, which is why, you know, I, I moved on to... Deloitte Mm. really just to find my feet again after that and uh, you know work out where where I wanted to go next. It's funny over the years I always put Enron on my CV I'm quite happy to talk about it it was an interesting time and actually Looking back, I've learned more, believe it or not, by reading some of the books that have been written since then because London, although you know, London was a big operation, the, the key decisions and, and the, the fraud that was committed was, was all driven by the, the people in, in Houston. Yeah. But the guys, there were a lot of very clever guys, came out of investment banking, lots of good good people at Enron in London who who suffered from that collapse with no fault of their own. And you know, people like me, I was still relatively early in my career. I was, you know, I, I, I never thought at the time there was any fraud being committed, but I do remember thinking their profits don't match their cash flow and they're chasing cash flow. And I, I remember saying to my wife, this is all going like, to unravel at some point, but, but thinking it would unravel sometime in the future, just like a, a company that's sort of been over-trading, not realizing until later that uh, what, what had actually been going on. And the slightly sort of strange thing is, you know, I've sat in meetings uh, in London with some of those guys who went to jail, the the, the, the then treasurer, wow. ex Anderson's guy, went to jail for several years. There was another guy, the right-hand man of the CFO, went to jail. And I think, oh, you know, I did meetings with these guys and a few lessons learned. And I think one of the great things about companies I've worked before, but also in particular after, experiences, you know the CFOs I've worked for—they've been really explicit about being open and honest, and about the numbers, mm-hmm. about communication. And where I'm at now, you know, we've got a team of financial reporting accountants who are scrupulous about how we approach the numbers. We make sure that you know we're, we 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 do the right thing. And I think, there are say, a lot of good people at Enron who. I think unfortunately, you got sucked into whatever was going on. Yeah. So, anyway, you live and learn and you move on. Yeah. You and I are still speaking many years later. <laughs> well, again, I remember
0: we spoke about it. Yeah. You, you know, the description you gave me, you said, Well, I just don't know where the money is, you know, i.e., because you couldn't yeah. see that clarity. And I think, as you say there, that since then, finance has changed and been, you know, a big warning sign at that stage. But yeah. where's the cash? You know, making sure it really is there. And I think that's one of the key lessons learned i think and then you joined deloitte and that's a place where you really get to know you know lots of different businesses and see under the bonnet what What was that like making the transition to there
1: it was good i had to think about it because having left the uh, profession as, as an auditor I, I was sort of unsure whether it was the right thing to do but but it was the right thing to do it was great at the time working for for Derek ross at deloitte great sort of corporate treasury advisory function, and as you say, exposure to, to different businesses, large and small. And you know, again, you get sort of that uh, sort of broader look at at the industry and, and what's out there. So that was a good good experience for a couple of years. It was a slightly turbulent time as well. It was sort of, we were sort of just, I guess, post-dot-com birth. And it obviously had the collapse of Anderson's as a result of the, the Enron debacle. You know, Anderson's, team in London or the UK merge merge with Deloitte. So, you know, there's a bit of turbulence and like like in all businesses, but a good bunch of people who join the team. And I only stayed there for a couple of years because just really by, I guess, by luck, I, a role, my sort of first deputy treasurer role came up, the role at uh, what was Alliance Unicamp. You know, and they say every cloud is a silver lining. Having moved from Enron to Deloitte, there was then this big focus on on accounting for derivatives. And I, I, I always, I'm pretty sure that it was IAS39 I, that got me the job, originally Alliance Unicam, because I had Focused on that and wanted to make sure I really understood it as a Deloitte consultant. And when I went to the interviews, the then treasurer David Mallet, was asking me about this new standard and my experience around implementing it. Although I know he was a qualified accountant, he was uh, too senior to get his hands dirty with that sort of oh. thing. <laughs> so uh, I was the person who was brought in as his number two, and that was certainly the focus of my first sort of 12 to 18 months to make sure we could evaluate our derivatives and, and, and get the hedge accounting right but that was a the Deloitte experience also looked back on positively and still got some you know some great people from those days say the building block for the next part of my career.
0: And talk about that part so you were then moving into this sort of leadership role and I spoke in previous podcasts and spoke to Adam Bukadida from Etihad Airways and he, we talked about his transition and again there was a question I was asking in Luxembourg about going making the move from being a contributor and a person helping out as part of the team and you know doing your job to actually becoming a sort of manager and making that transition and you, yeah. you'd made started to make that move you know with this role of deputy treasurer and then acting group treasurer at Alliance and you then were starting to manage people. What are you like as a boss, or what was it like then, sort of thing?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think, say more broadly, I you know you, you get you begin to get conscious that as you say, you're you becoming more than just a contributor, and you need to think longer term or strategically about what you're doing, how it fits into the business. And some people it. I might have an overnight. I remember thinking over the the years, I sort of sometimes reflected on it. And I sometimes went from this almost kind of, we call it a guilt feeling. You you know, when you feel you're doing real work in our line of work, my line of work, when you're sitting in front of your computer with a spreadsheet, doing some analysis. And then sometimes it becomes more of a role where you need to step away from the spreadsheet and your desk and go and talk to people. And sometimes I think, oh, am I doing real work here? But, but you are, because actually you need to build on your knowledge and your technical skill set, and then work out where you go in the next six months, twelve months, twenty-four months. You know, to be frank, you're. The Build that up over time, and, and the way I did it was partly by you know, observing other people around me. Some people do it well, some people don't do it so well, and this is where I think sometimes a lot of corporates are not quite as good as maybe the professional services firms in terms of education. But you, you've got to grab those courses or speak to mentors in the business and you know work out how other people do it, and actually becoming more of a delegator hmm. at the right time um, is a skill to learn. You know, when do you delegate? When do you do it yourself? And I think the key is, and sometimes it's a, you know, it's an investment in time, you're best off to getting good people in around you. There comes a time you've got to work out that balance between kind of letting go and letting somebody else do it under supervision. And I think that's a really important skill To learn, to develop. And I'd say if you're at that sort of point in your career where you're starting to to make that move and and change, look at other people that also go and courses, help in order to to learn how to do it. You know, don't be afraid of asking to go on a coaching course or being coached, et cetera. And I've certainly been lucky enough to have some of that. And it really helps. You know, top CEOs in businesses are always being coached. And, you know, don't be afraid to ask for that and, and, you know, say, look, I need some development in, in this area or that area and in terms of, let's call it the, the soft skills, yeah. um, because that's the way you will develop your career kind of in, in the second half of your career, building on the, your, your technical skills. And then the
0: business itself was going through some changes, Alliance Unicem, and, you know, again, mm. perhaps described for the, we've got audience members across in Europe, across in the US as well, and, you know, further afield, who don't perhaps understand or know the business. You know, what was that like? So you'd made hmm. industry sector moves. You the in the drinks industry, lovely industry, we like that. And then yeah. um, consulting and things like that. But Alliance, Alliance Boot and or Alliance Unicam yeah. as well, yeah. you describe that perhaps?
1: Yeah, sure. So Alliance Unicam when I joined it was I think predominantly a a wholesale of pharmaceutical products. So where effectively Unicem was looking to expand into the pharmacy side of, of the business grow more on, on that side. I think Boots, probably fair to say, was had been retrenching from it. It had been trying to grow globally, but had not been that successful, but still a fantastic brand, and especially in the UK. And so the two t- came together to what were, two, I think, FTSE, 75 companies, really focused on the UK and, and Western Europe at the time, I'd say, between the two of them. Although Alliance Unicode, interestingly, had some US dollar private placement debt swapped into euros and pounds, which I had to do uh, hedge accounting for. And so these two FTSE 25 companies merged and became a, I guess, I think it was a FTSE 30 company turnover of around seven billion pounds at the time. Two big operations. And you know, for me that was a fantastic experience. I was acting the treasurer of the Alliance Unicem side of things. I worked with the then treasurer of Boots to arrange bridging finance as, as the merger went through. And it's the key role there was to post the merger was to to merge the two treasury teams, oh. and the uh, decision had been made that the, the corporate functions were to be based in uh, Weybridge, where Alliance Unicam had its corporate functions based. And so we were lucky to have a couple of individuals willing to relocate from Nottingham, where the uh, Boots Treasury function was based. You know, we also did, did a lot of recruitment there as well to grow the team, and you know, then decisions around what TMS to use, etc. So that was a interesting time of you know working on everything from you know the deal structure, working capital forecasts through the merger, new new debt facilities through to just the practicalities of, you know, a day one, how do you get a merged treasury function to work on day one, different cash pools, revolving credit facilities, change control issues, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a great experience to go through that.
0: And, and how, how do you do that? Because, you know, again, people will be through that and that was... You've got one of my questions yeah. written down here, <laughs> Emerged oh. Emerge treasury function. What, what was the definition? Was it, right, where's the cash and everything else, or what,
1: you know, where's the risks, or what, was the, what were the key defining features? Well, of course, you've got to you know, go, go through and plan for it, so you don't turn up on day one and go, where's the cash? Um, so maybe stating the obvious, so I, you know, me and the guys in the you know, Latinachem like team, we work closely with our new colleagues to be on the boot side, and you've just got to work through, you know, several weeks and months in advance planning for, for, for day one. Yeah. So, um, you know, clearly there are effects, you know, although there's a merger at the top code, there are still two sets of operations, albeit you've got to look at is there any change, are there any change of control clauses? Will that impact any of my debt facilities? Will the credit risks change? So will, although there's no change of control, will lenders be, you know, less willing to offer an overdraft, etc. So we work through... The practicalities, how do we work our pools, etc.? And, you, and you, you have to have a plan and you, you work through sort of ground up from the cash, the funding, the change of control, what facilities do I have, and then you get on the phone to your banking group. And you know, for a lot of them they want to stay with you because they see it as an opportunity. There might be one or two that want to leave because of pricing, for example. You we suddenly were able to drive even better pricing on on, on our banking facilities. And so, again, you just work, you have to work through all of that as a team with your, you know, both sides. You know, I'd always advise wherever possible, if it's big enough, get a project manager. I was lucky enough to have a, a guy who joined a CFO, brought in a gentleman to to work with us on, on terms of the wider finance function, not just treasury, but it sort of forced us into planning and going through all, all, all the issues in detail for for day one. So, some of it was a just real practical. As you say, where's the cash? Will we have these facilities? And it's making sure that everybody is aware of what's going on. So, you know, all your relationship managers at various banks know know what's going on and, and how you're going to operate on day one. And then you made the move, after, well, post-merger and everything
0: else. Then you joined TravelX in your first full treasurer role. What was that
1: like in the step up there? Great, great opportunity. Thanks to you, Mike. Okay. It was a group treasurer role, and I wanted to... I set myself that goal of becoming a group treasurer. Now, TravelX at the time was owned by private equity, by Apex Partners in, in Europe, a global business. Probably at the time, if you were to look at the market cap, it would be like in the 52.50. But I was talking to somebody else the other day about this. You can't. Yeah, it's the same with all, I guess, finance roles. You can't look at the market cap and say, you know, how complicated is that yeah. treasury functional role going to be? When I joined Alliance Unichem, they were a see, 75. There were three stroke four of us, four of us really in corporate treasury. I joined TravelX five years later as a good treasurer, a smaller market cap business, so uh, yeah, FTSE 250, but a truly global business like Travelport, not to be confused in terms of the name. Mm-hmm. And I had a team, probably of People who had a treasury hat, treasury title, globally of about 20 people. And I remember walking along the Strand on my first day thinking, can I do this? You know, am I a fraud? And sort of deep breath and you walk in and you go, yep, you just got to go for it. And great experience. I joined at the time in 2007, just as a little signs of the, the credit crunch. I mm. think Northern Rock had hit the news. The business had been under private equity ownership for a couple of years. We even had a small project team gearing up for an IPO, but within probably six months, that was disbanded. And, uh, you know, we all know what, what happened next. Mm-hmm. But, no, it was a fantastic opportunity. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the various lessons learned there, and we can talk about, maybe talk about the credit crunch in a minute, but with such a large team sort of built up over years, you know, one of the things I had to do quickly was work out, you know, wars, the team, the structure, the way we did things, uh, I guess fit fit for purpose, and sometimes it's no disrespect to your predecessor, but you know times change, and, and you got to you've got to look at how the team is. So so over probably a period of a of a year or more, I managed to slim that team down to about ten, mm-hmm. focused predominantly in Peterborough, where Crevelocks still have a big operation, and the London corporate head office, and you know some of the roles out in the businesses, got absorbed into, I guess, payment functions or shared service centers. I didn't need separate people doing treasury stuff. It was really um, sort of local local shared service function. And so what I was able to do was then focus with a, on a smaller team that was able to deal with the treasury risks that I, you know, I was tasked to manage. And um, yeah, so it was a fantastic experience over I think, seven years I was there. And saw about three different CFOs, about three different CEOs, all mostly as a result of the fun games we had through the credit crunch. But again, that taught me some some great lessons about managing risk, managing your cash and liquidity. I guess you know there was, there was a lot of disbelief, I think, when that uh, those events started to unfold. And to you know to just dig into
0: that, and you mentioned that before, and that was one of the things noted there that. What was it? What was the difference like? I you mean, know, was it cap in hand when you were going in the credit crunch days, or was it just more? No. You know,
1: what, what was it like? Uh, so various lessons learned. When I joined, Travellex was committed to acquire a the B two B global payments business based out of Washington DC, and I remember joining in, in the in the summer and sitting in some calls with a couple of our banks. They were starting to get a little bit. Edgy about what was going on and was suggesting you might want to delay this acquisition. And and one of the lessons I learned from the then CFO John John Martin, who's now CEO of Ferguson, yeah. he, he said, look, one, you know, we are legally committed to acquire this business, but two, why wait? You know, if there are going to be you know choppy waters, we need to get on with it. He was absolutely right. And. We got on with it. It was a four hundred and fifty million dollar financing. Unfortunately, the banks did suffer as a result. They had underwritten that financing, and, and it took them a long time to syndicate that debt. I think at, at a loss. But as as a company, we were obliged for our shareholders to get on with it, and, and we did. And you know, it was absolutely the right decision not to prevaricate and and. and to to do it but we got that under our belt then in 2008 I remember as things got even nastier Lehman going and etc we undertook a huge credit risk project because TravelX was not only did it have you know lenders cash to manage foreign currency to hedge but we a lot of our commercial partners were with banks. We either bought physical currency from banks or we used them to transfer money globally, uh, electronically, globally, cross-border payments. And we had the residual of the, the, the uh, residual of a traveler's checks business, a big deposit with some key banks. And we had to embark on this project of really getting out arms around where all our risk was. And some of it, it was very little we could do about it, but we knew about it and we could monitor it and we could at least be aware of where, where the risk lay. But that that was a big, big piece of work. And then we did, you know, with certain uh, riskier banks where we didn't have to leave funds in overnight, we undertook a policy of sweeping overnight. So there was a lot of consolidation, but I guess it taught me a lesson of really to understand where your risk lies and not not to be complacent about that' and being very active. yeah yes. be very active yes. be proactive. The other lesson I learned was, was documentation. so in the I think the first half of two thousand and eight we had some interest rate hedges maturing and myself and the CFO decided we needed to Put in place some pay-fixed hedges for our, our debt in the U. This was all sterling debt in the UK. There were signs of, believe it or not, rates going up. Oil was on its way up. Inflation was on its way up in the early part of 2008. Myself and the CFO, I read a paper and it went to the board to propose that we put in place these pay-fixed swaps, mm. which we did. Transacted those, and lo and behold, about a month later, rates collapsed with the sort of rescue pack- packages that were. Being put in place to inject liquidity in, into the system and I was sitting with these swaps very well out on the money thinking what on earth have we done. But I was able to go back and look at our rationale and our reasoning and we documented it and it was board approved and you know with hindsight it was not the right thing to do but with foresight we had at the time, you know, and the way we documented it and got board approval, it was the right thing. Mm. You know, nobody shot us for us. It was just one of those things, you know, we then subsequently took some mitigation action. But I think that's one of the other lessons, you know, to you become more of a manager than a leader within the treasury function, apart from the, the people side of things and the soft skills around it, the leadership, you've got to you know, make sure you understand what your authority is. Always involve your CFO in those decisions and the board if you need to involve the board and make sure you you know, you know where you stand with your delegation of authority. And, then, you know, that was one of the first lessons I, I had from back then. And it was kind of with relief that I sort of read through what we'd said and thought, mm, fine, huh. you know, huh. we can't be shot for that. Nothing in uh,
0: retrospect and then that role you sort of move through that role you know wanted to sort of get into most recent role now travel x global mm. exchange group and things like that maybe just describe to, to some people say travel x travel what similar you know they're
1: very different so
0: perhaps, yes. you know, for, for the
1: listeners, <laughs> yes very very different so they both are uh, involved in the, in the travel space but i think a lot of listeners will obviously know travel x mm. uh, they might know not know all that They do or have done, but yes, in in the sort of money exchange, both electronic and and physical. Travel Court is a a technology company introduced in the beginning. We are, of course, a travel commerce platform now. Some people may have heard of us as what's called a GDS, global distribution system. But our technology and our competitors' technology was really built by the airlines in the 70s in order to distribute or sell their their routes, their tickets, on a a sort of international, then an international and global scale. And then in sort of the 80s and 90s, the airlines decided that this really wasn't core to what they do. They're there to sort of run an airline. And so those businesses were sold off in in various forms. And Travelport is the amalgamation of kind of three underlying GDSs or, or commerce platforms. And basically, it's a technology where in a really simple Way airlines put all their routes and itineraries into our system, and travel agents in all their forms go in and interrogate the system for the traveller, look to see what routes are available, at what prices, and then are able to book book that uh, hmm. for for the traveller.
0: Uh, so Peter, you know, more recently you've been gone private equity to public, and then the process is going back to being private equity. What what's implements that process, and and how's that then? impacted on treasury as it were because you, you we were saying yeah. before the show yeah. it's been quite a challenging time
1: yeah so it has i mean i, I what one bit maybe to, to add is into again thinking back to my travel ex experience yeah. of travel port uh, you know again the key is and again it goes back to sort of leadership you've got to work out have you got the right structure the right people in your team the right location the right technology and so you know one of the things that i started in like, fact before the IPO, thinking about, but then implemented post-IPO was, effectively, again, consolidating the team. So the team, when I joined, we had um, a whole team in Atlanta, uh, as well as a team here in, in the UK in Langley. And I realized, sort of, after a while, although a great team, really good people in, in Atlanta, it didn't really make sense in terms of a look-forward treasury structure. So with the use of technology and also matching the business model here, which is quite a centralized approach, and in terms of the way we contract globally, as a very sort of focused corporate team here here in Langley, it made sense to focus the treasury team here. So, the team was consolidated into a core team here in in, in the UK. And then
0: looking at the the future, you know, you've you've gone through this process, and you know, where, where do you see it going now? What what's, what's happening for you and Treasury?
1: In Treasury, alluded to before, we we've try to you know make ourselves more efficient effective in terms of the use of technology it's not always that easy and there's always deals like this that come along that uh, take you away from the the day job but i know you know in the background my team has been working on process improvement nibbling away sometimes it's lots of small steps to improve what we do and so some of it is just you know business as usual Getting you know more effective and efficient in the way we 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 do things. Stepping back with our new PE owners, cash flow is even more of a uh, focus. I mean, the luckily, and this is a lesson I learned from my travel days, and I travel port and uh, got a great team here who were already doing a lot of this. We, I mean, I know the group's cash balance on a daily basis. Some of that reporting has been a bit clunky in the past, but especially with the implementation of our uh, what we call our banking simplification project with two core banks, we get you know, electronic reporting of balances globally uh, on a daily basis. So I know where the, where the cash is in what currency on a daily basis, and we have each day a report goes out. You know this was a requirement for our new new owners, but we had that ready to hand. And also, of course, when you're managing the close of the deal, and there's needs to be paid, and there's a fund flow, you want to know that you've got enough cash on your balance sheet the day of close to, to make all those fund fun flows. Looking forward, there's going to be a lot more focus on short-term 13-week rolling cash flow forecasts. You know, we we always had a, a treasury as well as a financial planning cash flow forecast, but really there's going to be a, uh, even more of a focus on that as the, the debt burden has gone up and, and the and the interest bill has gone up significantly. So we need to make sure that we can, can fund the, the debt services. That's going to already is a key focus of of the team. There's also a switch, you know, I had a, an investor relations hat on pre-close. Obviously, we don't have any um, public equity investors now, but we will have lender calls to deal with. So, you know, me and my team will, will lead that, obviously working with our financial reporting and, and planning colleagues. And one of the things we're looking at now is what's what that going to look like for our Q3 reporting. So there's a lot of I guess, housekeeping post-deal, Ensure we are still diligent, effective, efficient control environment carries on, although we were SOX compliant as a public company listed in, on the New York Stock Exchange. You know, I think we as a business, although we had a painful implementation of SOX in the first year of being you know, a public company, I think we all recognise, having got through that, it was actually a, a good thing to go through. It forces you really to, to look at your controls and it does unearth areas, luckily not within Treasury, I might say, but within the wider business as to where, you know, better, control segregation of duties that are required. So you know we as a business will be carrying on with that. Something you know, we as a treasury team, we you know focus on the control environment as well. So a lot of it's business as usual, saying having a an effective, efficient function, especially in an environment where, let's be honest, you know, cost is a is a factor.
0: And so, you know, with yourself and you know managing a team throughout what has been Challenging period, you know, going through all this. What's been key to you and in, in coaching, mentoring that team? What has made you get them on track, sort of
1: Yeah, I, I think trying to be as open and honest as possible now. Clearly, there are times when, you know, you signed a non disclosure agreement. You can't say too much. People always get an inkling of what's going on. But when you can, bring people into the fold. I think mean, one of the lessons I learned, both at the previous company, but also here, a trouble port is, you know, don't underestimate your team, bring them in when there's a big project, you know, utilize, leverage their skill sets. I, you know, I am not the world's expert on payments and cash management, believe it or not. I know quite a lot and I know what I don't know, but I know who the experts are on my team who really know, you know, how to get through that awful KYC and AML that you have to do these days, um, all the documentation, et cetera. Bring them in because you you need their support, and so I think the key is when you can say lean on your team as much as you can, and try and be open and honest with them, and you know hopefully you'll, you'll get their support, and they they will you know be engaged, uh, which you know which I I've found here. Yeah so just you as we wrap
0: up today's interview you, you've got all this amazing experiences and as we'll put in the show notes and everyone can connect to you you know via linkedin if it's good for you good for them and everything right. else but you know looking back over this amazing career you've had these really interesting experiences both private equity what are the summary tips so if someone is looking back at that and says actually mm. do you know what I, I like what peter's done there that would be great, you know. When you know some of the bumps and stuff and the scrapes, you know, with the enrollment yeah. and all that and, and then all the way up to now, what's the, the overriding tips you would give or the pieces
1: of advice you might share with people? Yeah, I guess back, back to the beginning get, get qualified, prove that you got that sort of technical ability, and you will, you know. I, the treasury exams have changed since i've done them but i think they're even more relevant i found them exceedingly relevant when i did them having done the the aca the chartered accountancy i'm proud of the fact that i got through them and i did them but i found the treasury exams you know very relevant for the job so to do those go on courses really understand the technical aspects of of treasury and your your role in that you know one of the things I I think because I found it so interesting I you know, hardly quite enjoyed doing the treasury exams although I was glad I got through them just I got through the MCT just as my first daughter was born and I vowed I'd never do any more exams I haven't done any more exams since then but get a good foundation in terms of your qualifications then I'd just say be, be I call it be intellectually curious I've moved on because I wanted to learn more about other areas within Treasury and also the wider function you know, My roles have been quite wide in, in recent years. I've done a financial controller role at TravelX. I've always looked after insurance. I've done the IR role here. You know, Be open to new ideas, embracing new opportunities, and be curious. And, and also, don't be afraid to take risks. You go back to my Enron days and then subsequent you know, there are, sometimes in your career you've got to be honest and hang around for ages, but you're not necessarily going to get that promotion. So, so don't be afraid if you want to get promoted, to move on and, and take a risk, move to a different company. I always remember I got an excellent piece of advice from Guy Phil Bentley, who was the treasurer at Diageo when I was there, and he moved on to be a CFO and then a CEO and etc. And he. Gave me a look pep talk once and said, you know, Peter, you've got to look after your career. Nobody else is going to do it for you. And that sometimes means taking those tough decisions to to move on. So, as I say, get qualified, be intellectually curious, you know, be prepared to take some risks with your career as well. Exactly. So, and uh, yeah. So, study, be curious,
0: but don't be afraid to be brave, but with the right risks, you know, and, and manage your own risk yeah. portfolio. And, you know, when you're doing that, the only person really can look after you your own career is you really absolutely perfect absolutely yeah Peter great to chat to you today as I say we'll put Peter's LinkedIn profile in the show notes so have a look there connect with him and just thank you very much for your time today sir it's been great to catch up
1: and you Mike thank you